0: Southern skies or a line medium. Hey folks and welcome back to Plain Crazy Down Under, episode 66 of the program that looks at the world of aviation. From an Australia-Pacific point of view, sitting here on a windy, blustery night and trying not to be blown away, I'm Steve Vischer and hanging on to his head as well is Grant McHeron. G'day mate. Hey mate, how you going? Well, boy, is it a windy night down here or what?
1: Oh, I'm not sure if it's coming through on the microphone here, but we're getting lots of creaks, groans and clatterings over here in the uh, Western Southern Skies online media storage dump, <laughs> a.k.a. my office.
0: Well, I suppose uh, the wind might uh, disguise the sound of the, uh, the the buses and stuff going up and down the street.
1: It'll make a pleasant change.
0: Well, we've been doing a lot of GA and RAOs lately, but something we haven't done for quite some time is some airline news. But, uh, Grant, we're going to hit that tonight.
1: That's right, and how. We've brought back our good friend Ben Sandilands, and he's waiting in the wings, hanging on to our every word, going, come on guys, get over the ramble and get on with the show. With that we better
0: get on with it from the uh, plain talking blog at Good G'day Ben. How's it been
2: going guys?
0: Very well mate, we're just looking back through our uh, records here and we don't think we've actually had you on the show since maybe October last year so it's, it's high time we uh, had you back and talked some airline news.
2: Well um, it could be that uh, this could be the terrible things for you or uh, have to put it, your circulation in some quarters but no look I'm very glad to be back, it's uh, it's a great uh, thing that you're doing.
0: Thanks mate, well uh, look there's, there's so much news going on at the moment but uh, I guess uh, as we record this uh, right now, the, the big story to do with airlines in, in this part of the world has to do with something that's actually been imported from Chile, and that's a whole heap of ash from the volcano. Um, I mean, how does this compare with what went on in Europe last year? Is it? Is it, it I'm not sure whether it's as disastrous, or is it just a matter of scale?
2: Uh, I think on the terms of scale, it was probably as bad as Europe. But of course, uh, the density of flights, the number of flights affected, while it might have seemed catastrophic to us, uh, was much less than the uh, situation we did see in Europe. Europe with the various uh, the various problems with the Icelandic uh, uh, volcanic gods. The other difference too was that uh, this occurred in winter months in Australia, uh, and that meant that um, there was a, a big problem for pilots uh, flying at night and and. Uh, Uh, Both Virgin and uh, Qantas uh, were united in uh, not flying at night in some parts of Australia because the pilots could not visually see uh, the ash cloud. What we have to remember about ash clouds is that in Australia, uh, we get broad-scale data from the volcanic advisory ash centers, and that's, uh, that's sort of like in large areas of land, and they say, well, somewhere in here or ocean somewhere in here, there could be risk, and we think the altitude uh, range will be as follows. What, of course, airliners uh, need is uh, micro data, if you like, uh, frequently refreshed. And, uh, of course, one of the problems with the the airline radar systems Mm is they do not detect uh, ash clouds, and we all know that ash clouds are very dangerous. Uh, I think the very interesting thing that happened in the... uh, the ash encounters in Australia, looked. there was quite a phony war waged over safety in the media yes. uh, some days after the crisis first set in. Uh, the way I see it, uh, both uh, Virgin Australia and uh, Qantas Jetstar uh, did absolutely the right thing, which was not to fly through uh, concentrations of volcanic ash. Uh, the way Qantas did that was not to fly anywhere near it at all, and the way Virgin Australia did it was to spend a lot of time and effort finding out exactly where it was, and then making sure they could fly under it or around it, which is what Air New Zealand did too.
3: Exactly. And
2: that difference that, that that difference worked quite well for a, a while until, of course, the uh, the ash level descended to as low as ten or nine thousand feet in New Zealand airspace, which meant that, that nobody uh, would even think about flying in it under any circumstance circumstances
3: yeah at
1: the at the moment as we're recording air new zealand started reopening the south island except for queenstown that's the only place they're not flying to but they were making a big thing in their press releases about how they were flying lower uh, going further north on the tasman and uh they were they were saying they were willing to take a 10 percent fuel hit to ensure their passengers got through and didn't cancel mm. flights without directly saying you know unlike jet star who canceled everything <laughs> you know, it's like read between the lines and you totally got that <laughs>
2: It was quite extraordinary, actually. jetstar in jetstar New Zealand, in fact, didn't fly for four or five days, yeah. um, which is uh, quite a quite a significant period of time to put your fleet on the ground. Uh, I think there's also a popular myth here that we need to explode, in that uh, um, the suggestion was widely circulated that Qantas was doing this to save money. Uh, it wasn't prepared to burn the extra fuel. Uh, and that was complete nonsense because um, these jets that uh, Qantas wasn't flying weren't earning their click. They oh, had exactly. leasing finance charges. They had uh, fixed costs like yep. salaries and uh, systems. And uh, there's no doubt that uh, Qantas, uh, we, we should uh, respect this, took a significant financial hit uh, by what they did, just as Air New Zealand and uh, Virgin took a si- significant but a less less painful hit in terms of extra fuel
0: burn. If you look at the way it played in the media, and it's it's interesting to watch, at the moment we're watching a big PR battle going on on many fronts between the two major carriers in this country, but uh, it, it seemed to me that Virgin perhaps was trying to leverage as much positive PR as they could from the fact that they appeared to be flying more than Qantas was.
2: Oh indeed and they did Uh, Virgin found themselves without an enormous backlog. They found themselves with uh, customers uh, hammering on their counter, so to speak uh, to be carried and so the result for Virgin uh, paid off uh, certainly I think all of the hard work they put into uh, keeping flying and they had to put in that hard work because uh, the consequences of not doing that could have been very serious. This is exactly what Virgin that Australia did exactly what 99.9% of airlines in Europe did. And it is true that in Europe they had the benefit of better data. Uh, they had uh, actual measurements of the density of volcanic ash in various places. It wasn't however perfect. And uh, they what they were doing was they were looking at the broad-scale data and they were being pretty conservative about uh, about flying around that and flying under it. The satellite readings did tell them what the minimum altitude of the ash was, but with, with a, quite a quite a reasonable degree of accuracy. It also told them roughly where everything was in daylight hours. But once nighttime fell, and of course we have long hours of darkness Mm -hmm. uh, uh, here compared to what Europe experienced during the Icelandic event, uh, then they didn't fly uh, because the risks would have been much too high. The only times they flew at night was when they were given an absolute categorical assurance by the Volcanic Ash Advisory Centre, but there was no ash of any description in Melbourne airspace or Sydney airspace.
0: And and an interesting thing here, I just noticed uh, reading down on your blog here, Ben, that you know the airlines perhaps were uh, restricting their flights, but um, the RAAF was still flying its politicians around on the, uh, on the BBJ.
3: I
2: think I'd made the uh, point about the two different uh, policies quite clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, the RAF is charged with safely flying our parliamentarians, and uh, uh, as the uh, current session of uh, Australian Parliament opened, they picked up all of the senators and representatives in Tasmania and flew them at uh, 15 to 16,000 feet uh, directly under the ash concentration areas uh, uh, to Canberra. And uh, that's both volumes for the, uh, the way that uh, Virgin Australia, for example, and Singapore Airlines and uh, all these national carriers were actually doing it.
1: Plus, I guess the uh, the RAF is looking at a slightly different approach to maintenance costs, things like that. It's They've got to get them through, whereas the airlines are going, well, hey, these people can just wait a day or two.
2: Indeed. and and look uh, there is a, a distinct possibility that uh in coming months as they as they continue to do regular overhauls of their engines they may notice some uh, volcanic ash effects there, there is a subtle effect from volcanic ash, very very fine ash which yes. accumulates over a period of time and then there's of course the extremely unsubtle effect if you fly right through a shoal of uh, and you have a sort of a BA9 type incident uh, where you lose all power in your engines or something worse. The interesting point here and I've been talking around to people is that volcanic ash degradation shows up, in fact, in most airliner engines over a longer period of time because there is always an element of volcanic ash in the atmosphere. There are dozens of active volcanoes at any given time most of them are around the uh, Aleutian uh, air routes which are in fact very busy air routes. We're talking about Hong Kong to New York and uh, and a lot of the uh, non-stop routes that go from North America to China.
0: One of the interesting things too I I wonder as uh, time goes on over the coming weeks and months whether we might see that uh, these aircraft might go through a bit of an enhanced inspection regime just to make sure I mean uh, it would be quite prudent I think of the airlines to do that. I mean for example is this something that the uh, European carriers uh, instituted after last year's event
2: yes yes they did the European companies particularly those who had uh, had uh, shorter term leases did in many cases have to perform more uh, how shall I put it uh, more frequent uh, inspections they did have special moriscount inspections because they were interested in one in one sense in get, uh, accumulating baseline data in the other sense the, the real owners of those jets the leasing companies wanted to make sure that the uh, if there was a problem it wasn 't allowed to deteriorate to the point where it 's going to cost everybody a huge amount of money. so a lot of that work went on and in fact, what the results, as I understand it, showed was there was negligible impact on those engines. There were very, very few cases. I think there are about eight individual engines where there was some some minor cause for concern, but nobody totaled an engine, nobody had to completely replace an engine. Nobody had an engine which was covered in you know a fine layer of glass which had uh, been generated by by melting uh, by melting volcanic grit, and what this tells us is that everybody took a lot of care, mm. even Ryanair, not to fly through uh, the directly through the ash clouds. And you might remember the bravado with which uh, Michael O'Leary spoke about how volcanic ash is almost good for an engine. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, he would. Yeah he would, uh, but in fact, he didn't. Uh, <laughs> he was as conscious, as it turns out, as anybody else as, as to uh, what would happen to the investment uh, and uh, the relationship between Ryanair and, uh, in some cases, and the lessons. So uh, there was an awful lot, of, as I said, a lot of, lot of phony posturing about this. At the end of the day, all of the airlines, and I, I can't think of an exception that's been identified in Europe and certainly in Australia. Did exactly what was required of them. They did not fly through concentrations of volcanic ash.
1: Well, they probably all remember the story of that NASA DC 8 that uh, flew through the edge of a cloud, the uh, airborne sampling system that just by fluke flew, flew through it, and then later wound up mm-hmm. having to do a, a full replacement of the engines at a not straight away, but slightly more advanced time than they expected they'd have to.
2: Indeed, indeed. And in fact, I think the passing of the, the BA and Singapore into it is. Uh, over Indonesia in the airspace uh, way back uh, there was the KLM uh, incident uh, near Anchorage where the jet on approach to Anchorage flew through a fairly dense concentration of, uh, of ash from uh, one of the many, many active volcanoes in Alaska and it suffered quite extreme damage and uh, that taught the industry a great deal about the dangers of flying through volcanic ash, possibly even more than the uh, the,
0: British Airways Internet, uh, over in the Well, Ben, let's pick from a, the great list of topics here. Let's move on to Virgin Blue, Virgin Australia or whatever they're called now. Virgin um, Who? Yeah, Virgin Who. Boy, have they been in the news, Ben. The first we get them uh, the news that they're changing their names. Then the first A330 arrives and they start running across from the east coast across to Perth. Uh, that's making the news. And then as if that's not enough, last week we hear that they've uh, finally done a big deal with uh, Singapore Airlines. They are really making the news right now.
2: They certainly are. The Singapore Airlines uh, deal uh, is an incredibly important deal for for Virgin uh, Australia. Now, we have to remember that this deal could never have happened uh, if uh, Chun Singh, the uh, previous CEO of Singapore Airlines, had still been there or if the founding CEO of uh, Virgin Blue, Mike Godfrey, had still been there. Because both of those men who were very, very good uh, at what they did for their airlines had the relationship between Singapore Airlines and uh, Virgin Blue as had been deeply scarred by the, uh, by the events that preceded the collapse of ANSET in uh, 2001. Mm. Um, and what we have seen happen is a total about face in the relationship between the, uh, the, the Virgin company that uh, Branson owns, that's the Virgin Holdings, and Singapore Airlines. And it's a devastating combination, uh, I think, uh, for Qantas because uh, it takes a lot of on-carriage from Singapore Airlines off Qantas. It reflects the profound changes that are happening in the uh, Virgin Australia product uh, Uh, how shall I put it, uh, strategy, and it puts a very big challenge. It puts an enormous stress on Qantas. I'm not suggesting for a minute that Qantas will not find answers and uh, not uh, react to this in a very, how shall I put it, uh, comprehensive manner. But we have seen an enormous increase in the competitive pressure in the Australian market, and I think that's actually an extremely good thing.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's certainly going to put the, uh, as we've been saying, the cat among the canaries and so on and uh, give everything a jolly good shake.
2: I don't think we've seen the end of it either. I uh, have a no. very strong suspicion, um, or more than a suspicion, that uh, there will be some some major additional announcements between now and the end of the year involving uh, the Singapore-Virgin uh, uh, relationship uh, and also possibly in relation to uh, the Delta uh, Alliance and the Etihad Alliance.
3: They're going to
1: really, really lock up the whole planet, aren't they? They
2: are, but there's, there's, there's missing elements. The things we can see missing, if you listen carefully to what the various airlines have said, we need more aircraft, I'll put it this way, their eyes are bigger than their stomach. Uh, if you listen very carefully to what John Borghetti has said at Virgin Australia, Virgin is going to need additional long-range aircraft. And yet he said, as he, much as he liked the 777, he was reluctant at that stage. He actually said, if I had to sign off sign on the triple seven today, I wouldn't do it. That to me says that uh, that Virgin Australia is going to be getting some additional aircraft from somewhere else.
0: It's interesting too that the A330 they've got. I mean, it's not new. It's a, it's an ex um, I think it's an ex Emirates plane, isn't it? Already had one it of those. Is.
2: It is the first two uh, ex Emirates aircraft they're flying now. Uh, however, the following two, which will arrive in the uh, in the new year, are uh, brand new aircraft, and they're, they're configured. You uh, know, in a, in a, in a, you might find this hard to believe. If you see the first ones, that they are actually uh, more, how shall I put it, uh, luxuriously outfitted wow. than the uh, than the two uh, A330s that uh, they're currently flying. But if you look at the uh, commitment they have to. Uh, uh, to up to twice daily to the to North America uh, and uh, daily to other uh, Dhabi, They actually don't have enough triple sevens now, and uh, those aircraft are performing extraordinarily well for for Virgin Australia as they are for Singapore Airlines and uh, and in the 200 lr version as they are for Delta now. There's another, another little clue here in the, uh, in, the uh, in the strategy. If you read the docket, which is the most boring document you never pick up, the, the <laughs> docket that uh, Virgin uh, and uh, Delta Airlines submitted to the Department of Transportation, while you're dredging through the several hundred pages of TVM, there is a section where they agree or they achieve immunity to develop a common service mark, as the Americans call them. And that means they're going to, or they can, devise an overall. Branding which will incorporate both the Delta and Virgin Blue capacity across the Pacific and call it something like, uh, well, if we were going to be mischievous, we could uh, call it Pacific Flyer, uh, but I'm sure <laughs> Fodder probably, probably have something to say about that. Delta V. Uh, well, I, I, you know, I'd I, I like the patent Delta V, but I don't think they're going to pay any attention to me. They use it in the headline about a year ago, uh, and, and of course this led directly to Qantas going going ahead with a thing called uh, its application for a joint business agreement with American Airlines, and that's now had interim approval from the A C. It doesn't need approval from the American authorities, but surprise, surprise, the Qantas application also allows that sort of joint uh, sort of smart. What we we're seeing is the use of these new forms of uh, competitive immunity, if you like, to rationalise the, the, their operations without actually going through the immense... Uh, difficulties of true airline rationalisation at this stage. We're actually seeing route by route rationalisation of competing airlines.
1: Yeah, but then Qantas turn around and do Sydney to DFW and start getting all sorts of fun with those aircraft.
2: Well, they are. That's a big problem for Qantas. Uh, I've been very critical about that. I think, I think the idea of, uh, and it's not just me, of course, it's the hundreds of passengers who found that their flights uh, weren't non-stop. Uh, or that their baggage didn't turn up when they turned up. But those it, it, it has been something of a, of a of a nightmare for Qantas at the moment. As my understanding is they are still flying extremely low loads in order to ensure that the plane actually does go non-stop to Dallas-Fort Worth on its way out of here, and that it does, it does come back with only one stop in Brisbane on the way back. It's quite clear that uh, Qantas has the wrong plane for the route, but it hasn't got the right plane for the route apart from an, a 380. I mean, and even with a the 380 there would be a a, a minor payload uh, penalty, but they could at least do it uh, non-stop reliably both ways from Sydney instead of having to come back through, uh, through Brisbane. Uh, I'm not suggesting that Qantas is going to do that. I think What Qantas may well do is they may well persuade American Airlines to use some of its 777-300s, which it's taking delivery of, on that route. Mm. Uh, and that would see American airlines return to Australian skies after a very, very long absence uh, way back in the 90s when they had a uh, had DC-10 service.
0: The interesting thing that I wonder about is, I mean, wh- wh- how did they come to the decision that they needed to run to Dallas? I mean, uh, okay, for someone like me who likes to travel to Arkansas, that's extremely uh, convenient, but I can't imagine too many people from Australia would want to do that. Why do they see flying direct to Dallas as, as something that's so vital and something they need to chase with these aircraft? I
2: think... At- the management level, it was a question of uh, of uh, betting down a much more ambitious relationship with American Airlines and. Uh it was not done with a view to, uh, to, how can I put it, uh, reliability, uh, or, in, or indeed amenity. Because remember, if you, uh, fly to New York via Dallas, Fort Worth out of Sydney, you don't get, uh, the upgraded, uh, cabin product you get in the 380s. You will eventually, because they are, they are going to convert those, uh, 747s 7 7 to the A380 product. They're going to remove, remove the first class and, uh, put in, uh, the A380 business class and the uh, premium economy, economy seats. And I think that when you analyse the journey times for people, um, it actually doesn't really make much sense. I mean, most people, I think, would prefer, for example, when they're coming back from New York to Australia, to do it one to Sydney, to do it one stop in Los Angeles. Why on earth would they prefer to fly to Dallas, Fort Worth, to get onto a plane with an inferior cabin, and then fly to Sydney via Brisbane, and if they're very unlucky, via Namibia, Auckland, or (laughs) Who you knows where else? Rangitaba, perhaps.
3: Um,
2: or indeed, uh, Bora Bora. Well, no, Bora Bora uh, would be good fun, not Bora Bora, Murora Atoll, um, which is indeed, don't one of the alternative airstrips in the South Pacific.
0: Well, I guess it would stand uh, out at night, it would glow pretty well, I suppose, Murora Atoll.
2: Well, yes, indeed. But, uh, you definitely wouldn't, uh, wouldn't uh, rush off and have a dip in the lagoon under any circumstances, apparently. Um, and so far, I no, has had to divert to over at all, but it is one of those, uh, one of those ports that uh, could happen. Uh, and so it doesn't really make sense. I mean, it made sense at a corporate level to bring American Airlines more tightly uh, into a joint business arrangement with Qantas. But I don't think it's, it's terribly attractive to Qantas passengers. And the big task for Qantas is to make it attractive. Part of the answer to that will be changing the cabins, upgrading the cabins in the 744 ERs, which are the best 747s ever actually manufactured. Qantas has got all six of them. But, uh, but in the long run, Qantas actually needs something which has got a better range payload combination. And uh, the only thing that they have in their order books that is going to do that is, in fact, the A380. Uh, if you examine the... Uh, the 787-9 claims, that aircraft is not suitable for that route. It's a British aircraft uh, once, it's, uh, once it's delivered, but it's not a British aircraft for Dallas-Fort Worth to, uh, to Sydney. In fact, not even the 777-300ER can do that without restrictions coming uh, coming here against headwinds. Uh, and that's where Delta, uh, for example, could just possibly use their 777-200LRs to actually do a non-stop Atlanta to Sydney service. And even that would take, take a payload hit and would have to be completely reconfigured because Delta has not taken those aircraft uh, with the auxiliary tanks uh installed Mm -hmm. uh which would of course made it uh, a very interesting uh a very easy route to fly so i wouldn't be at all surprised if we have a position within the next year uh where the uh, delta uh australia uh product whatever it might be called is operating non-stops uh, between uh, Atlanta and uh, Sydney, which has a you know, fantastic airport with an enormous number of connections and that uh, American Airlines and Qantas are uh, possibly with American Airlines, triple uh, seven 300 offering Dallas, Fort Worth, Sydney.
0: Ben, one of the interesting things that uh, we've been looking at on our segments on the uh, Airplane Geek Show where we've been covering the Qantas and Virgin news is the, the push by Virgin to move into the, uh, the business market and try and grab a larger share of that market. That's an interesting strategy from an airline that's not really been known in, its, say, its 10-year history for going for that market, but that's that's a real quantum shift that's that's happened since Borghetti's been there. How do you think that's going to affect Qantas? What, what do we think Qantas is going to do to counter that? I mean, do they look at that, sit back, and perhaps wait and see whether they need to increase their business service or, or bring it back to the same level as Virgin, or what do we think might happen there?
2: Well, the, one of the clues to what's happening is to look at the Virgin product uh, and compare it to the Qantas product. When you bought a Qantas uh, business class uh, flight uh, to Perth, You're in a business class cabin with a huge number of suits. Uh, very good seats, I might add. When you board a Virgin flight in their new business class, even even if you're boarding a, a 737, it's a much smaller, much more exclusive uh, business class product. So what the, the first thing Virgin has done is they have produced a business class product which is really not ever going to sell at the same volume as the Qantas product. The Qantas product is pitched at a fair level, if you like. It's, it's pitched at, well, basically what Qantas does is it goes to very big corporate clients and it sells business class on a contract basis for considerably less than what you or I would pay in cold blood to fly in business class. Virgin seem to have deliberately gone for the individual entrepreneur, the, the, the wealthy uh, the wealthy but comparatively uh, rare passenger who really doesn't care what fare costs at all and then they have also uh, attacked Qantas uh, in the economy class area, in the, the middle market area By by putting in, as they they claim to be, uh, a very competitive, full-service, economy-class product, which you can buy for a Jetstar fare if you want to pay extra for a meal. Uh, But you'll never get the same meal that you would get if uh, you had purchased the more expensive, uh, more business-friendly, more flexible fare. And and they've cut back their fare ranges in economy to only three. three, Dirt cheap, middle-of-the-road, and extremely expensive. And uh, so I think their strategy is to not really try and grab the really, really big corporate accounts uh, that still fly business class because there aren't that many of them. They are trying to corner the absolute cream of the market, you know, the, which is only going to be 8 to 12 passengers per flight. Which is Singapore Airlines' approach, and quite interestingly, to, uh, to uh, its premium cabins, and that is, that is, that is a very difficult uh, thing for Qantas to counter because it can't afford to upgrade. 40 seats in a uh, in a seven six seven to the same standard that we're seeing in twenty odd seats uh, in a in an a three thirty on uh, Virgin Australia. It can certainly compete very vigorously in the uh, economy product but Borghetti john Borghetti the uh, new CEO of virgin Australia seems to seems to have decided that they're going to go for the absolute cream of the business class market.
1: And then and then go pretty well with the economy and round it out. Because I I like <clears throat> as you mentioned they've got dirt cheap, middle of the road and super top. And I like how the middle of the road one now you can actually cancel that twenty four hours or change it twenty four hours after you are due to fly.
2: Yes indeed, they've they've done all sorts of clever things there because uh, if you're busy, you miss your plane, you rebook, you haven't got time to get around the way you would have to do on, uh, previously had to do and still have to do, in fact, on Jetstar flights or even indeed some Qantas fares. So they've thought very carefully about this, and of course, it's no surprise. John Borghetti comes from Qantas. He understands acutely the mind of the business traveller and what is going to appeal to them. Remember, I actually believe that the business traveller that both Qantas and Virgin Australia are after is the business traveller who flies economy class. I think that that's where the great bulk of people are going to purchase fares, and what Virgin and Qantas are fighting over is people who don't blink when they have to pay $190 one way to go to Melbourne rather than people who don't blink and there are not many of them who are being asked to pay $700 to go uh, between uh, Melbourne and Sydney. And they are basically leaving the, uh, the sub-$100 market to the likes of uh, Tiger and uh, Jetstar. It's a very painful situation for Jetstar, by the way, because a lot of Jetstar fares now, if you go out and look for them, are actually above $200. Yeah, they're
0: certainly not. The- the the budget airline I mean it's interesting in a way isn't it that they have almost taken the same sort of turn that Virgin has taken remember when Virgin first came along you know it was, there was a big song and dance about them being a low cost carrier but I, I think over time that sort of changed to where they they sort of came back to being more middle of the road and of course now we see this, this complete restructuring of their fares so you know it would be interesting right. to see if, if um, uh, Jetstar decided to change their strategy and start playing down in the Tiger Airways market. Well,
2: well we need to wonder about that very very carefully and in fact uh- if you want to try and just sit back and, uh, and maybe uh, maybe let our minds wander a bit, the worst possible outcome for Qantas at the moment would be for uh, Singapore Airlines and Virgin Australia to decide that uh, Tiger would become its, uh, its low-cost brand in Australia and its own second brand. Now, that's just a wild thought on my part. I'm not alone in thinking this. Uh, Singapore Airlines, of course, has sold down its stake in Tiger, the the whole Tiger Group, to only 32 and percent. But I have never seen John Bulgerti deny the brilliance of having a low cost brand. I think he is as convinced of the the original strategy that set up Jetstar as anybody else. And I know it was uh, it was uh, ruefully admired by uh, Virgin Blue as well. I just think that he's decided, like Virgin Blue did, that it's the higher fare paying passenger who wants a good bird and a flexible fare that uh, they're the chasing. And uh, in Virgin Australia, the cost base is nevertheless always going to be lower than that of Qantas.
1: Is it much lower than the uh, Jetstar cost base, given Qantas Cabin Crew Australia, given uh, the Jetstar X uh, Impulse Cabin Crew and Tech Crew I- EBAs and all that kind of stuff? Is Jetstar at about the same level or-, or cheaper than Virgin these days?
2: Now, that is a very, very clever question because, as we all know, uh, there's no transparency in Qantas as to the extent to which uh, the Jetstar product is. Being cross-subsidised at the expense of the full-service product, and until we got any some sort of accounting from Qantas as to what Jetstar really costs, uh, we can't really answer that question. My suspicion is that the costs of Jetstar and uh, and Virgin Australia are in fact very similar, and the danger, of course, for uh, for Jetstar in this situation is that uh, Virgin Australia will be getting a better yield on average uh, than Jetstar. Is able to get away with, uh, and the, the vehicle that's keeping them in check is of course Tiger. Tiger might be well. Tiger is actually stuck with 10 A320s for the next for the for the rest of its financial year at the end of next March. Uh, it's stuck with them because CASA will not allow it to increase its fleet in Australia until it is satisfied uh, with a safety oversight reorganisation in Tiger, which is underway now. But with those 10 A320s, we haven't seen the end of this yet. We are seeing a big concentration of Tiger's capacity now on routes where it will really hurt. And I think we need to watch carefully what happens between Melbourne and Sydney, indeed uh, uh, Melbourne and Perth, uh, because that is where Tiger can do an awful lot of harm to Qantas and indeed
0: Virgin Australia. Well, from a from a business standpoint, and I've been advocating this for a long time, and Grant will tell you, I mean, I despise Tiger Airways, but, you know, <laughs> this is what they should be doing. And I, I've been long been a believer in the fact that only having a fleet size of 10 aircraft and trying to stretch themselves as far and wide as they have been trying to do across the nation, you've only got to have one or two aircraft become unserviceable for some reason, and then every other aircraft is now out of position, and that causes chaos. And that is why, I mean, the Channel 7 show that they were... Uh, of, I mean, it was nicknamed "Everybody Hates Tiger," and I mean, that's why because they they weren't able <laughs> to offer the service, uh, you know, for these reasons.
2: And in fact, they have admitted that they have they have they have actually said in very clear language that they're simplifying their root structure. They're, they're avoiding the sort of W-type uh, shaped network where they uh, where they got themselves stranded at regular intervals with an aircraft out of position. Uh, They've recognised what was blindingly obvious, to be perfectly honest, uh, to a lot of us, and they're doing that. But. Uh, The the sting in Tiger, if you wish, is that uh, they've got 10 jets to play with and so far they've played with about five of them. Uh, That means that there is some very big shocks still coming from Tiger. My own personal view is they'll go for a higher uh, frequency uh, uh, sub-$100 service between sydney and melbourne another thing tiger has done it's stopped trying to charge ridiculous fares at short range i picked it up a few weeks ago i because i often often you know trawl the uh the airline websites and tiger had been trying to get 300 dollars plus from people uh at a short notice you know to fly down to uh down to melbourne or up to sydney they've stopped doing that they're not asking for any outrageous fares. They're, they're sticking their fares just above or just below hundred dollars. You're not seeing that very much anymore of the ridiculously cheap special come-on fares at all. And that, and of course, at hundred dollars, a seat, Tiger Tiger will make handsome money. Let's yeah. not kid ourselves. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I think that's what I think Tiger Tiger, with only those ten jets, is going to be a very much more competitive airline over a much more uh, intensely focused route structure over the next uh, nine months. And Singapore still has an interest in Tiger Airways, Um, and Singapore now has a very close relationship with Virgin Australia. It might sound a bit far-fetched, but I think there's a few dots there we could be tempted to connect
1: well, one one question you you did mention Tiger running um, Sydney Melbourne. Uh, could they? I'm just imagining if they really focused on Sydney Melbourne, which is the cash cow for a lot of uh, airlines here, because it is such a very heavily travelled route. Lots of it's like the fifth highest in the world, or is it the third? I can't remember. I think it's the third, isn't it? The third. I think it's fifth now. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Okay, back to fifth. The thing with it is, if they did that and or the Golden Triangle of um, Sydney Melbourne Brisbane. and really focused on it. They could do to that cash cow what uh, Virgin and Co have done or or V Australia have done on the Pacific in terms of really they've slaughtered Qantas over there. They've just destroyed it.
2: No, well you're quite right. In fact, the mail I'm getting is that that it's taken a long time. It was always going to take a long time, but they're actually cash positive now uh, on the the Pacific routes. And um, so you're, you're quite right. The potential for Tiger to do this is very obvious. I think they will do it. Uh, I think it's beginning to hurt already and of course uh, show and tell time comes in August when both uh, Virgin Australia and Qantas have to report the last the last half of this financial year and thus their full financial year results. I don't think either company is going to be uh, well going on their official guidance they're not going to be brilliant at all.
1: and, and another destabilizing influence that's creeping into the Pacific market and is already here in Australia and especially up to Bali and so on is strategic and they're like Tiger were when they first started out. They've only got one or two long range aircraft, wide bodies, things like that. Uh, How do you see strategic going, especially with now they're trying to look at going across the Pacific?
2: Count me not convinced at this stage. I'm at the same stage with Strategic that I was with OzJet uh, at its early stage. I'm not predicting that Strategic will come to the same sticky end as OzJet for half a minute. Um, I have a lot of respect for the ambition, and uh, also I think strategically, uh, oh dear, that's a terrible pun. Uh, they have been very <laughs> clever. Uh, in, you know, they've, they've clearly not picked a head-on fight with uh, established carriers. You know, they're, they're going back to things. Uh, Uh, like routes to Honolulu where, okay, they're up against Hawaiian, which is a pretty formidable competitor. But they're they're not, uh, how shall I put it, kicking the the giants uh, in the shins, uh, which is a very bad thing to do if you've only got one or two wide-bodied aircraft. Look, strategic, I would watch with a great deal of interest. Michael James, the owner, doesn't really let too many secrets out at all. Is it a long-term play that they have? Are they looking at something more short-term? I honestly don't know, but you can't fail to keep them in, in view. They will need a lot more capital and a lot more aircraft to actually make a difference.
1: Yeah, definitely agreed. But they could they could make uh, a bit of an inroad by going to the non-standard international airports. For instance, they don't have to fly out of Brisbane. Well, so long as it's got a long enough runway to get a fully laden wide body off with a lot of fuel to get to Hawaii, uh, they can open up mm. other, other ports that the majors just aren't going to.
2: Well, indeed, Cairns has been uh, been mentioned uh, on a number of occasions. I don't know about that at all because uh, one of the things that was very, very uh, bad for Cairns uh, when Qantas tried it was the seasonality of the route. Uh, But, of course, if you're nimble enough to uh, have seasonal timetables rather than fixed uh, yearly timetables and you go and deploy that jet, let's say, somewhere else uh, from, say, plucking something out of the air, uh, Perth, Bangkok or whatever... Uh, when, uh, in fact, uh, nobody wants to be in Cairns because it is in the middle of the, uh, you know, the, the tropical north summer, then that might work. But at the moment, what I see in strategic is too few aircraft and really not enough information too early.
0: Yeah I think if they were to try and, well, would, and, and I think if they were to try and to break into the more mainstream airline market I mean they're going to have to raise a lot of capital um, and you know in, in the way the economy is around the world at the moment they may even struggle to do that and particularly seeing as the, the east coast corridor here is already quite saturated with, with airlines and aircraft as we just
3: discussed.
2: Indeed. Look, the one thing that really alarmed me about Strategic uh, was its application for capacity to China. China is for Australian business of any description something of a, a slaughter the ground. To be successful in China, you really need to have worked at it for generations to build up the relationships. The, the shining example of doing business in China is of course Cafe Pacific uh, through, through its uh, Swire Group origins and it makes me very skeptical of the Qantas ambitions for a uh, for a new uh, Asia-based low-cost but high-quality product airline uh, because nothing in China happens quickly. Uh, It is a long and very involved process and in fact I think if anybody in Australia, be it strategic or Qantas or or Virgin Australia is serious about China, they have to do it with a partner that really understands China and has worked on it. And look Singapore Airlines itself has had enormous difficulties in successfully diversifying itself into China. It, uh, it, it, it's, it's bid for a stake in China Eastern lapsed. Uh, it finally managed to get uh, some sort of an Air Freight venture going. It has a really good network into China, but its its plans to actually diversify, you know, and, and own a chunk of the China action, if you wish, haven't come to fruition. So, I'm I'm extremely cautious in, uh, when, I, when I listen to arguments about uh, what strategic or Virgin Australia or Qantas might be able to do in China.
0: Well, Ben, there's, uh, there's two more things we want to touch on briefly before we go. And I guess the other, the other major news story that's been going on in the airlines around Australia at the moment, and speaking of Qantas, is uh, Qantas slash Jetstar versus its unions. Things are not happy over there.
2: Well, they're not. But a very, very interesting uh, sort of, how uh, shall I put it, strategic, strategic uh, contest has been underway at Qantas. It is now abundantly clear that there will be no industrial action by the engineers or by the pilots at Qantas until well after the end of this financial year. And that means that uh, whatever happens in the year to June the 30th, management will not be able to blame it on the unions. They've, uh, the unions have both uh, made a lot of noise and uh, created a lot of very interesting arguments without uh, really wanting to take sides on that. But they cannot be accused of having actually financially harmed Qantas. So the, the, the emotive terms, you know, the kamikaze uh, unions or the rogue unions I don't think really are going to look all that convincing if the fact there hasn't been a strike. There won't be a strike. What has happened is that the, the industrial bargaining arrangements uh, have been allowed to expire, uh, and the unions have therefore gone and uh, gone to Fair Work Australia and have got approval to uh, ballot their members for protected industrial action. It doesn't have to be strike action at all. So I think the rhetoric is far outstripped the reality. Uh, We haven't seen Qantas disadvantaged by industrial trouble, but we can see enormous potential for industrial trouble to arise. And and the critical thing in this issue is the plans by Qantas to shift assets out of Australia into Asia-based enterprises like Jetstar Asia. And it's not surprising, standing back, that there's a lot of resistance to that by by people who live in Australia, pay Australian taxes and... uh, and uh, have have come to the view that Qantas actually means Australia. It doesn't mean uh, some sort of uh, offshore arrangement. And I think... At at the investor level, never mind the uh, labor level, there is a lot of unease about where Qantas is going and whether or not the strategy that the board has obviously approved is going to work.
1: Well, they're just trying to bypass the Qantas Sale Act, which says that, uh, what is it, Must maximum of 49% foreign ownership of Qantas and all that kind of stuff. Well, let's just, here's another Qantas division, but now it's
2: overseas. Uh, well, well, it's, it's, in fact, it's actually more than that. I mean, the 49% restriction is common to all sort of, if you like, uh, air treaty uh, arrangements. But the Qantas Sale Act does p- pose some pretty serious restrictions on uh, Qantas, but doesn't impose those restrictions, as it turns out, uh, on Jetstar. When the Qantas Sale Act was, uh, was drawn up uh, in uh, 1992, it was drafted, it, uh, nobody, nobody in Australia understood low-cost carriers, uh, and that included Qantas. Nobody understood that, uh, nobody could foresee the Jetstar situation, which would have arisen 11 years later. And so the Qantas Sale Act, you can argue, in fact, that uh, Qantas is quite right to try and uh, force the, uh, either the repeal or the revision of the Qantas Sail Act. It does pose some very unfair restrictions on Qantas, there's no doubt about it the Virgin Australia can do all sorts of things uh, in terms of raising foreign equity uh, that uh, Qantas can't do. And it makes it much easier for Virgin Australia, for example, to to rationalise itself into some sort of multinational uh, uh, enterprise, a bit like the International Airline Group that now includes uh, British Airways and Iberia. Uh, whether it will be successful or not entirely another matter. But, uh, so Qantas has very good, very good reasons to be concerned about the limitations in uh, 2011 of uh, the uh, Qantas Sale Act. But in the, the process of doing it, they, they do run the serious risk of alienating uh, the public. The public want Qantas to be an Australian airline. And uh, I think that is going to, going to be a very difficult issue for Qantas to sort of uh, rationalise if in fact it is using new vehicles to take a lot of its assets and jobs uh, offshore or indeed to import, if you like, uh, pilots into the Australian uh, system the way, the way Jetstar has who will fly alongside Australian pilots but at uh, lower rates of uh, pay.
0: Well that seems yeah. to be the, the big sticking point at the moment we've seen a lot of commentary on that and uh, Grant and I have talked quite often about the uh, the jet connect deal with the New Zealand pilots uh, and actually one there- of the most one of the most uh, telling things that I saw recently was a, a picture somewhere it might have been in a YouTube video even of a uh, basically a jet connect plane in Qantas colors promoting the Australian wallabies tour and then you pan across to the uh, to the tail and you see the uh, registration starting with uh, with uh, ZK so and um- a
1: Kiwi flag
2: exactly. Exactly. I've uh, been uh, fairly vocal about that too. I mean, the the same week that uh, I was uh, getting vocal about that... Several major grocery chains in New South Wales were fined quite severely for selling Australian fruit, which didn't in fact come from Australia, and were warned <laughs> that uh, the next time they did it, fines would, would, would be in the $200,000 bracket. Well, Qantas is selling a Qantas product or selling a Jet Connect as, a, as, an, as an Australian product, and in mm-hmm. fact, it's not. Now, look, I'm not mocking the New Zealand enterprise at all or the quality of Jet Connect. That's, that's not an issue. What's an issue is the fact that uh, uh, those pilots uh, are not paying Australian taxes. They are uh, enabling Qantas to avoid paying a number of uh, things that it would have otherwise paid to Australian workers, and who would have been subject to Australian superannuation laws. Mm. Um, and that is of concern. If we if we if we follow the logic through, we can become a country which produces nothing and is surrounded by offshore uh, enterprises that uh, fly into and fly out of Australia uh, for the purposes of not. Uh, not actually supporting the Australian economy. It's a difficult thing to, to say. There are countervailing arguments about the inevitability of globalization, but I think the process of equity and brand honesty, if you like, uh, need, need to be explored very carefully. There is no reason why Qantas can't be a much more successful airline than it is today. I don't think there's any justification for Qantas seeing its market share drop to the abysmally low levels it is now on international routes. Uh, it could have invested uh, in better network, in better fleet, and better business practices and better product. And these were hard things to do. And uh, I'm one of those who gets the impression that this management and the previous management is looking at short-term fixes, not some sort of long-term competitive response.
1: Yeah, well, short-term fixes pump up the uh, the share price, theoretically and allow you to cash a few things in and get out, and it's the next sucker's problem. But uh, it hasn't seemed to work this time, has it?
2: No, it's not working at the moment. Uh, it's certainly not. Uh, no. uh, Qantas is now a long way underwater compared to its, uh, its listing price back in uh, 1995. <laughs>
0: It makes me wonder if that's the reason that um, Alan Joyce got the job ahead of John Borghetti. If you have a look at the things that Borghetti's doing, I mean, uh, you know, another good publicity coup for Virgin has been that they've announced they're going to bring maintenance back into Australia. Um, It it makes me wonder if if these these sorts of of ideas and thinking, this sort of thinking is maybe a reason that um, they wanted to keep Alan Joyce on the Qantas board instead of Borghetti because because of the two different streams of thought.
2: I I think there's a lot in that. Um, I I try not to read too much into it, but uh, I... I watched uh, John Borghetti's uh, performance at the uh, the uh, Senate, <clears throat> Senate inquiry into uh, into uh, pilot training and airline standards, and quite frankly, the only thing missing uh, when he got to his feet, I didn't the He when he uh, when he uh, addressed the uh, uh, the inquiry. Um, and uh, promised that uh, he was looking at every way to bring more jobs back into Australia, which of course made everybody in Pacific blue and new Zealand a little bit nervous. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing missing was that the the, 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 um, the uh, australian children 's choir didn 't leap to its feet in the back of the back of the room and start singing I, I still call australia home i mean <laughs> it, was, uh, it, it was an amazing uh, performance, and it summed up uh, i think the uh, the problem that Qantas has. Uh, with the public perception that the public want Qantas very much to be a successful, Astra- and competitive Australian brand.
1: Well, there could be a very good reason why it's Virgin Australia, not Virgin Pacific. <laughs>
2: um, yeah, I, I I must admit I, I I had a sort of a suspicion it was going to be Virgin Pacific, but uh, but you're quite right. The logic the logic of Virgin Australia is uh, is uh, overpowering at this stage. Um, Mm. And uh, we, we will see some more surprises come out of the Virgin Australia. I know that, mm. um, that I don't, I'm not going to get myself into trouble by, <laughs> by saying I know, uh, know all of them, but I'm aware of a few interesting signs out there, and I think, we're going to see a lot of action. Then again Qantas is in a position now where it's got its backs to the wall so to speak and I think that in turn will lead to some very exciting things happening at Qantas. I don't think, uh, I don't subscribe to the view that Qantas is now you know an airline enterprise which is going to collapse and vanish uh, like Ansett uh, in a remarkably short period of time. I think Qantas is a very durable brand. Uh, I think it's got a lot of very determined people working for it and uh, I, I think with all of its uh, strategic problems the, the the existing Qantas management is nevertheless very interesting, uh, very intelligent, but I, I just think that they did not, in their business planning, uh, envisage what the reaction from either the Australian public or from their major competitor was going to be.
1: No, definitely. I think I think they thought they could just push it in under the radar, get it out there, and just quietly make everything happen, and um, suddenly become this different entity but a whole lot of the media and a whole lot of the unions and the public and everyone's just held them to task and suddenly you've got Bordecai and everyone's saying, yeah, well, indicating and implicating that they're going to become more Australian than the Australian flag holder.
2: Fun, fun, fun. No, I think, uh, I, think uh, I I think think the other thing we need to look at too very carefully is not to forget that, uh, that uh, New Zealand now uh, is on the board of uh, Virgin Australia. It's got uh, almost 16% of the airline. It has said uh, in recent, uh, recent times that it's looking to get more out of the... Uh, alliance it has with, uh, with uh, Virgin Australia than just the uh, traffic agreement across the Tasman and uh, it's really funny but uh, it's almost like uh, what happened uh, in the run up to ANSET in one sense that uh, Qantas is I uh, was very concerned about being surrounded by what what uh, I remember uh, Jeff Dixon describing as a BMO, Uh mm. That uh, you know, Singapore Airlines was going to uh, manage to uh, to cement a tripartite uh, relationship with Air New Zealand and, uh, and ANSET. Well. Um that's I happening should, should now I don't think however that, I mean the difference between birds in Australia and Ansett is that ANSAT was indeed a basket case and nothing was going to save it and it's a completely different picture with birds in Australia
0: well it's exciting times in the aviation industry uh, Ben I tell you what uh, we've got so much stuff on the list here we could, we could probably go for another hour but uh, time is getting the better of us blogs.crikey.com.au slash plane talking is where we can find you and uh, we can also find you on Twitter Ben yes
2: you can there's a little button on my uh, website uh, which means you can follow me if you want to or you can find me uh, uh, on twitter as uh, plain talking
0: absolutely well ben uh, let's not make it another six months before we talk to you again it's uh, been great fun having you on and uh, we we, uh, thank you very much for uh, spending some time with us look
2: forward to it thank you very much guys
4: Whether you're buying or selling a light single-engine aircraft or a corporate jet, do it faster and easier with aviationadvertiser.com.au. aviationadvertiser.com.au is Australia's largest aviation marketplace. As the country's largest source of aircraft classifieds, you'll find hundreds of new and used aircraft of all types, online 24 hours a day. With ads from just $39 and the convenience of buying and selling online, it's easy and affordable. Connect with Australia's largest buy-and-sell aviation community at aviationadvertiser.com.au.
5: Hi, I'm Anthony Simmons from The View from the Lounge, and I've decided to take a trial instructional flight from Arabin Airport. Now unlike the usual Views from the Lounge, I did a fair bit of research into this and came across an absolute trick bit of interweb kit, and this piece of kit has been both informative and instructional. It's CASA's new on-track web information system that lets general aviation pilots get up-to-date info for where they're flying into, how to get down, and how to get back up again. I think that's rather important stuff. They cover a wide range of piloty need need-to-know things and provide the background behind the change from GAP to Class D. See, I have been paying attention. I gather the changes to standardised processes, something which I know only too much about. And for somebody who has no understanding about the old and the new systems, this gets you on track easily because it lays out the A, B and C of moving to Class D. I don't need to be a pilot to see this as an informative resource. If I were one, it would be an invaluable resource. Greater information for general aviation? I'll raise a glass of club soda to that.
4: If you're listening to this podcast, chances are you're in the aviation industry. You could also be spending bucket loads of cash on advertising your business. Well, this won't cost you bucket loads. Advertise here on Plane Crazy Down Under. Listened to by hundreds of aviation enthusiasts and professionals who might really like to hear about how your business could help theirs. We'll even throw in some advertising on our website as part of the deal. See our affordable rates at www.planecrazydownunder.com. Just click on the Advertising with PCDU link.
2: Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network.
3: The voice in your head.com.
0: Okay, our next guest on the show is a private pilot, a freelance journalist, and she's uh, very bravely consented to come and have a talk to us tonight. It's Cathy Mexted. Hi, Cathy. Welcome. Hi, guys. How are you doing
6: tonight? Hello. Well, we're warm enough by the fire.
0: Cathy, we've been uh, hoping to get you on the show for quite some time. We bumped into you uh, last year at the Centenary of Powered Flight air show there at uh, Melton, and uh, you uh, stood by and watched while I was suffering from the flu and coughed myself to death as uh, Grant interviewed some people.
3: <laughs> <laughs> we
6: were both after the same subject,
0: weren't
6: we? Pretty much. I In fact, we were, uh, we were fighting
0: over Chris Beru. Yeah, Chris yeah, that,
1: That's pretty much it. <laughs>
0: That was a funny day. I got. A, that was a funny day when you look back at it because um, I, I was so ill, and I'd always wanted to meet Chris Peru And I, when I finally got there, I could barely speak to him because I could barely say anything. I was so choked up, <laughs> choked up, coughed up, and going.
6: He was very good with his time.
0: Cathy, uh, you're a freelance journalist, and um, for those of you who are in AOPA Australia, they, people are probably uh, have uh, seen your articles in uh, Australian Pilot magazine. Uh, how many articles have you had published in that magazine?
6: I think I've been writing for them for about two years. This article I did was on uh, Victorian aerobatics championships at Tocqueville, and the editor said, "That was a, I love that story, can you give me more? And so um, I never... Act- so I came up with another idea for about 12 months and a friend of mine at uni said she'd just got a gig writing a guide to country race tracks, and I thought wouldn't it be great to be able to do a book for pilots on the uh, same sort of thing like airports with accommodation and lunch and whatnot. So I asked the editor if there was a book called The $100 Hamburger and he said no but I'd love a column under the same name. So I started doing The $100 Hamburger Stories. So we'd jump in the Piper Cub. And fly from our home here at Hanging Rock, and just go and find lunch, and write a story, take some photos, and send it in.
0: I guess the idea of the hundred-dollar hamburger probably um, has more relevance in a place like the US, I guess, where that originated from. But I guess, um, gee, a hundred dollars wouldn't get you too far these days. it Would be more like about a three hundred-dollar hamburger in this country, I guess.
6: <laughs> oh, the cub doesn't burn much fuel, and we never went very far. <laughs> you know, you got to be back, you got to be back before school pickup. <laughs>
1: Quick, quick flight, nothing more.
6: <laughs> <laughs> actually, the first well, one I did was at Toke Mall, and I was up there on foot. I was up there for Christmas, so I didn't actually fly into Toke, but um, I have flown in there often enough because that's where I learnt to fly, so I could write about that.
0: Well, let's before we start talking about uh, any more of your writing so far, let's talk about um, some influences, some some things that got you into aviation. Now you're a private pilot, um, so yeah. what got you into flying? What what tweaked the interest for you?
6: When I was about nine or 10, my dad learned to fly. So he was a private pilot and um, he started when he was about 42 and he did 997 hours in his flying time. He was a stock and station agent and he flew all around New South Wales and Victoria buying sheep and taking clients around and every opportunity he would pull the plane out and take people for a fly. So we would always jump in and it was no big deal for us just to you know, go for a fly around. We never went much further than Takemall, but, um, yeah, that's how it started. And uh, so he'd give us a go on the controls and I guess it kind of normalised it for us. And so, you know, it wasn't such a big idea because it was, you know, You do what your dad does, don't you? So that's where it started. I used to watch Skippy. That's where my love of helicopters came from. (laughs) Um, And then during the 70s, when I was in high school, they started growing rice in Finlay, and so the ag planes came to town. And so I would go out in the farm with Dad and hold the flag while the crop duster pilots came down and dropped rice or chemical on top of us, and then we'd walk, you know, six paces with the flag and stand there and hold the flag and wave again. And the crop dusters would come down and line up me with my flag and my dad or my brother, or whoever, at the other end with his flag. Yeah, off it would go, and we'd get rice and the chemical or whatever all through our hair, and, and we walk another six paces until it was all over. I did go up. I remember in Year Twelve, I went up with um, the ag pilots a couple of times, and Mum had a fit. And looking back now, I see why. Yeah,
1: so I don't blame her at all.
3: <laughs> yeah, but, uh- Yeah.
1: Back in those days, they didn't really worry about exposure to chemicals or things like that, did they? It was just, ah, oh, dust it off and go for the next one, kid.
3: Yeah, well, it
6: was before the days of GPS or even mobile phones and, in fact, even before telexes or faxes. So, um, yeah, it was before any of that stuff. That's how they used to do it. Nowadays, they won't even – They I don't think they'll do that – they won't spray in the paddock if anybody's there. Yeah, the egg well, pilots and it's
1: all, it. it's all GPS controlled as well. They can lay down perfect swaths.
6: Yeah, yeah, they don't need me with my dodgy six steps. <laughs>
1: well,
0: nope. They are a unique breed, Ag Pilots, I guess. Do you, do, you, do you sort of spend much time around Ag Pilots these days or have you just sort of moved on?
6: No, no, we love the Ag Pilots. Um, my husband's father is a 30,000-hour Ag pilot, and uh, so we've got friends in the industry. And Yeah, a few weeks ago we went up to visit friends up at Forbes. Had a great time, good stress relief. They're always good fun, the egg pilots. It's kind of more normal to me to be mixing with them than uh, perhaps the airline pilots or being a country girl.
0: Now, you said um, you'd sort of uh, been exposed to aviation from an early age, but it really wasn't wasn't a case of, uh, you know, turning 18 and jumping straight down the flying school and getting a licence. You sort of waited a few years before you went down that path.
6: When I was 16, um, Dad was in the Finley Flying Group and there were six or seven partners in that. And one of the partners, his son, learnt to fly and he's the same age as me and he was 16 when he got his licence. So Dad said to me, uh, you know, you enjoy being in the plane if you want to learn to fly or pay for it. And I was 16 or 17 and doing year 12, and I just uh, didn't know that I'd really be up to that. So I just didn't think I needed to waste his money. <laughs> I knew he didn't have a lot. I'm the fifth of eight kids, so the pilot's Whoa. license seemed a bit excessive. <laughs>
1: yeah. well, were you the only one who learned to fly?
6: Uh, initially, I was, yeah. But okay. I've taught. I talked to my sister. Well, I didn't talk to my sister, but gave my sister the idea as well. Um, and my brother did a gliding, glider's license. So I didn't do it then. Um, and then in my mid-twenties, I was nursing in Corowa and I was driving back to work one perfect spring day. And I drove past the airport and I thought, what a perfect day for a fly. And I thought, isn't that a funny thing to pop into my head? But obviously, that's what Dad used to say and... So I went and had a flying lesson and then went overseas for a couple of years. And when I came back, I was about 30, 29, I think. And uh, I was living in Finlay, nursing part-time in a geriatric home. And there wasn't a lot going on for me at that time. (laughs) (laughs) So that that was a good time to go and learn to fly. It was wonderful.
0: You said that, uh, of course, your father was a pilot and, and, you know, there was obviously uh, other people in the family, but you're actually married into a flying family as well, aren't you?
6: Yeah, my father-in-law's an ag pilot. He's got about 30,000 hours, I think. He's one, Gary Mexted. he's one of the um, oldest ag pilots, I think, in the country. And he's got two sons, one who's my husband and one, so he's a Qantas pilot and my brother-in-law is a cafe pilot. And actually his sister, one of the sisters did a gliding course as well, but never kept up with it.
1: It must be interesting so, um, when those two get together, because you know Qantas Cafe. Woo-hoo.
6: <laughs> well, he lives in Hong Kong, so <laughs> <laughs> that's a safe distance, you'd think. No, no, they get on right.
0: Yeah, that must be um, must be an interesting uh, sort of being in social circles and stuff with airline pilots, and particularly your husband being a Qantas pilot. Does you know do you find that sort of conversations tend to gravitate towards him, and perhaps frustratingly so. <laughs>
3: As
6: soon as you say he's a, a Qantas pilot, people either want to tell you about their little luggage or um or they want you to talk about all the free trips you have around the world, which doesn't happen a lot.
0: Yeah. Well that yeah. just that just up yeah, so a no, whole nobody, lot of questions. Nobody wants
6: to know what I'm doing. They're more interested in the airline pilot. Okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the exotic the exotic job of the airline pilot.
3: <laughs> it can be exotic, I suppose.
0: So that must—I mean—that must be an interesting lifestyle in itself, or, or perhaps a different from the normal lifestyle from what most people would expect. Because you know, your husband wouldn't be at home all the time, coming in and coming out. So that would be something that uh, families of uh, of airline pilots would would certainly have to adjust to, I imagine.
6: Yeah, it's a, a different sort of life. In fact, um, when we first got together, his mum said to me that you need to think about the lifestyle that you're going to be living. And uh, uh, when I first got married, I think it was when I was just pregnant with our first child and Dennis got into the airline then and I announced this at a women pilots' luncheon or something and this woman turned around and said, I hope you're prepared for a lonely life. And I thought, gosh, she's a bit cranky, you know. (laughs) But her words, whoever she was, those words have come back to me quite a bit over the years. So, um, (laughs) And also because we live out in the country so... We live out Hanging Rock, which is not the middle of nowhere, but you still don't have, we still don't have, you know, next door neighbours and stuff. And um, yeah, you just kinda gotta get on with it. Actually the my best friend that I met when I first moved here, she's married to a corporate pilot. And so I just look at her life and realise how easy my life is.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> so well, it's all about yeah, perspective. I guess the corporate pilots they they're all over the place at a drop of a hat, aren't they?
6: Yeah, yeah. He'd go off and you never know when he's coming back. He says he'd be back in three weeks and I think it was three or four months one time.
3: Gee.
6: <laughs> in the end she Oops. said, Don't tell me I don't care, just tell just tell me when you're here. You know, ring me from the <laughs> airport. So but um yeah, we didn't really mix with um work people as such, so I pretty much just sort of made my own way and it was just happened that, you know, a week after we got here I met this in the park, and that was how we got to know each other. So, um, yeah, we've helped each other through a few, few episodes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a book, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it. We went to Cairns for three years, about five years ago. And that was the first time I actually had a chance to meet a lot of other airline pilots' wives en masse. And um, we'd get together for coffee mornings and whatever. And one, we realised we all had the same stories. And one of the women said, you've heard one pilot's wife story and you've heard the lot, which is a gross generalization. But we realized that actually we had, did have a lot of the same stories. And um, so I've decided to put together a book called The Life and Strife of the Pilot's Wife. And uh, just, uh, I've just been quietly collecting stories from people. And I think my favorite was in the introduction was how, how we met. And one girl told me that when she, um, she was a pilot herself and they were met through a parachute club and she went home and met when she went home to meet his mother, his mother said, I just hope he meets a nice girl to talk him out of all this nonsense. (laughs) And then the next sentence, she said, um, parachuting was our life and every weekend I'd fly the 180 and he'd jump out of it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's
1: awesome.
6: So she probably wasn't the girl his mother was looking for.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Not quite, no. She talked him into it more than out of it. <laughs> hey, so
6: um- another chapter in the book would be uh, Stop Dragging My Heart Around, which is another common theme was about how many times you have to move because yeah. we got together when he was just doing charter flights and so each time there's a career step, it's always – somewhere else and so you pack up and move and so as the wife or the partner i think you have to have your own gig going
1: have you considered doing a chapter on the book about uh female pilots and and their side of it and comparing what they've encountered with uh with what the wives have encountered
6: that's another chapter there's i wanted to write about when pilots marry who gets the career because often you'll find that the woman's left holding the baby (laughs) and uh The guys will, you know, if there's only enough money for one endorsement or rating or whatever, it often Uh falls to the guy. Um, So it's interesting to talk to people who have done it successfully to see how they manage it. And then I did an interview, I've got a story out at the moment in Australian Pilot on Helene Young, who's an airline captain based out of Cairns, and she's a novelist. And when I was doing that interview over the phone, we were laughing about the book. And she said, oh, my husband could tell you some stories. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing. Because I was talking yeah. about the moving, stop dragging my heart around, you know, yeah. about yeah. having to move all the time. And she said she was doing her Command training, and it wasn't until later, once they were settled in Cairns, that um, he actually told her what it was like for him to have to, you know, finish the renovations, pack up the house, organize removal, work out where they're going to live at the other end, work out how to get all the stuff there. And she said, in the end, he had to drive with the car and the trailer and all the flammable um, anything that they yeah. wouldn't take the truck.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I was
6: laughing about when we came home from Cairns. Um, my son and husband drove home in the ute with the trailer with, you know, a boat on top and two bikes, motorbikes <laughs> in the back and lawnmower and lord knows what else. And so um, she said that her husband had exactly that same experience. So, so yeah, I think it would be fun if I, if I can get a publisher and get it going.
0: So, now, so it now, here's an interesting question. Now, um, let, let's say that uh, you and your husband are up in a Cessna 172 and you're flying along. <laughs> Who's going to be the pilot yeah. in command?
6: Oh, me because he's he's fine. He's
0: He's he's just told to sit there and shut up,
1: yeah.
6: He could not care less. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't he's have a full
1: GPS system, right?
6: <laughs> not no, no, no. He loves little plants. He's building a one design, and oh, cool. we fly around, fly around in the cub, the cub, and he's happy for me to keep flying. He's very encouraging, actually. That's awesome. So yeah, so but, it's a good arrangement because he's he doesn't have the need to have his hands on the controls. But I did see – I have seen that where there's his and hers and he's always the one doing the landings, you know, because
3: <laughs> that's yeah. what
6: private pilots fight over. So he's going to do the yeah. flying.
3: If you, if you <laughs> Usually listen to it's me
6: trying to me. She so usually me throwing my hands in the air going, You landed, you landed. It's <laughs> a strong well, crosswind, maybe. Look, once I might have done that, the strong crosswind.
0: I would imagine for your husband, though, I guess, living in the, the rather regimented world of, uh, of of airline flying, that, not just, you know, for any airline pilot, I guess, it must be almost therapeutic to come back to some more basic flying and sort of kick back a little and just enjoy it.
6: Yeah, he, his mother said that he uh, had wanted to fly since he was, you know, a tiny tot. Because he grew up around it with his dad being an ag pilot, and they lived on stations in the Northern Territory where his dad was a helicopter pilot. And um, so it was always right there in his face. It's just what he's always wanted to do. Yeah. So um, he's a a genuine aviation enthusiast as opposed to some of the airline guys who would rather play golf or go sailing on their day off. Yeah. He'd rather go and fiddle with his aeroplane. He doesn't yep. relax much, so I send him down to the hangar.
1: <laughs> well, it's, it's good that you can appreciate the need to go to the hangar to relax, you know, the ultimate man cave, so to speak.
6: We kind of got to know each other when I was learning to fly and he was towing gliders, so he was sitting in the tug plane and I was doing circuits off runway 18 and he was, I was talking to him through the headsets. He was listening to me on the radio and watching me do the circuits. So the flying was there before the romance, you see. They can't take it away from me. Can't take it away. There you go. <laughs> I had it first. So, but we have had some good fun. <laughs> We've had some good trips. We went to the Bahamas last year with uh, Australian pilot. Were offered by this mob in Canada to um, Caribbean Air Challenge to go and do to send a journalist. And so the editor said to me, "Well, you can write, you can fly, and you can take photos. Why don't you go and do the story?" So, oh,
0: um, how many seconds did yeah, you have to consider good- that? <laughs>
6: Well, my head spun off my shoulders
3: (laughs) and uh,
6: I said, yeah, I'm sure that'll be fine. He said, you can get yourself to Florida, the rest is paid for. So um, I was freelancing like crazy and cleaning houses and selling off furniture, (laughs) but we got there, it was great. And Dennis did the flying when I wrote and said, is this really on? And my husband's got an interest. Uh, an instrument rating as well. So they were thrilled with that. So he flew with the organisers and I rolled around in the back and generally had a good time for 10 days. It was fantastic. We're hoping to go to um, Alaska in a couple of years and uh, fly around Alaska. The Kimberleys is the other place I'd love to go because I haven't actually seen a lot of Australia.
0: Cathy, let's let's talk a bit more about your writing. I mean, how long have you been actually, you talked about doing freelancing all over the place, but how long have you been in that sort of game? (laughs) Four years. Right. (laughs) So but I'm pretty
6: old. I've done a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, I just sat up one day and thought, you know, I've always thought about journalism and so I uh, started off thinking I'd like to write magazine articles and I think what I enjoy most about it is talking to people and getting out and about and hearing the stories and photography. I love photography as well. So, yeah, yeah. I've had good, good success with Australian Pilot because the editor is so easygoing and uh, just was happy to take whatever I could give him. Cool. And RM um, Williams, Outback Magazine is the other one and they've been very good to me as well.
0: Writing in, in a, let's face it, what is pretty much a niche market for aviation, you know, sometimes we find it a challenge to find stories and at other times we find there's just a, a mountain of uh, subject material or people to talk to. How have you found um, finding uh, subjects to write about?
6: That's the hard thing about freelancing, isn't it? Uh, who was it? Someone, some famous a writer said, you sit down at the keyboard and then slit a vein? Yeah.
3: <laughs> yes.
6: <laughs> well, that's what it's like freelancing. <laughs> pitching, finding stories and pitching them and then hoping that you get a reply and hoping it all comes together. Um, the aviation stories are the easiest for me to find because... That's kind of the world we live in and that's the conversations we have over the dinner table and and the people that come through our kitchen and most of them are not airline, they're general aviation of some sort because, well, we're building and we're um, with uh, with the building, you know, there's um, the sports aircraft guys and then there's engineers working on the Cub or the Bonanza and all sorts of interesting people that come past. (laughs) So, yeah, I've been listening to the talk for 18 years, so it's quite good to be able to get involved. I did a World War One story on Roby Manuel. That was I love doing that story. He was um, he was an orphan from Kerrang and he went off as a soldier. Saw an aircraft flying over when he was on the boat in Port Said and decided he wanted to join the Flying Corps. And he eventually did that and came home uh, an ace. And uh, so it was really lovely talking to his family, all his grandkids, Pretty a lot of his grandkids have taken up flying. So um, I really enjoyed that and seeing how the family all... Came together under the aviation umbrella there. I did one on Cole Griffin. A friend was here and he said, I've got a good story for you, Kath. I was at the airport and I saw this old guy who taught me to fly in the 80s and he said, I haven't got time to talk. And he hopped in his RV and said, I'm, I've got to go to Adelaide and I'll catch you another day. And that was Cole Griffin, who you know.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah, he's cool. Yeah. We could have talked to Cole for probably another hour and a half or so when we had him and, <laughs> and I'm sure he was willing to as well but time, time oh, got yeah. away from us sadly.
3: <laughs> yeah.
6: No, he was great. So um, I interviewed him for Flight Path magazine. So I think if you Google Kathy Meckstead Cole Griffin, it comes up with the story. Someone has put it online about his World War Two experiences and then I did another profile story on him for Outback magazine just about the fact that he's nine, he was 90 and still – getting around like there was no tomorrow. His quote there was, um, I'll make it to 100, I'll walk it in. Well, (laughs) I'll try anyway. Helene Young, I found through Twitter, I was talking to another author from Esperance and she said, oh, if you fly and you're interested in that sort of stuff, she said you should read Helene Young's books. And so I did and loved them. And that was why I chased her up to do the story on her. At the moment, I'm chasing not so much profiles, but uh, more general interest stories. So I'm, hope, I'm researching one at the moment on aircraft respraying. Because the spray painter was at our kitchen table (laughs) and I thought, there's a story idea. (laughs) They marched through the kitchen. (laughs)
3: I'm
6: doing one on spraying. I'm hoping that if I can catch Julian Fraser and pin him down, I'll be doing one on insurance, aviation insurance. Um, I'll do some profiles of the ag industry, how you become an ag pilot, why the hell you'd want to do it, what the benefits are, what the training involves, that sort of stuff. So for Australian pilot, I'm starting to look at what sort of things would interest a GA pilot or an aircraft owner. So I'm not going to write about life as an airline pilot's wife because that's probably not relevant or interesting to your average Cessna 172 driver. So um, I'll talk about Cessna 172s <laughs> and how to paint them and ensure them.
1: <laughs> yeah. There you go. Well, that's important stuff to know.
3: Well, it is, yeah.
0: Now Kathy, um, now you, in preparation for this interview, you did something that uh, Grant and I are completely unaccustomed to here, and you actually um, sent us some suggestions <laughs> for things to talk about, which was a, a real new thing for us. I must, I must admit. But uh, just looking down here, and would, uh, you've you've listed some of your more uh, uh, memorable moments in aviation, some of the things that are most memorable for you. Uh, I just want to run through them here. Flying helicopters over the Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe—that must have been awesome.
6: Yeah, I wasn't flying it. I was the paying passenger.
0: Close enough.
6: <laughs> it was. <laughs> My brother, who lives in New Guinea, who did the gliding, he said to me, um, I'll take you wherever you want to go. And I said, I've always wanted to go to Victoria Falls. And he said, um, that's great because I lived in Africa for three years or something. And he said, I'd love to go back. So we went there and I went down the waterfall every day. And he just sat by the pool because he said, no, I've seen it. <laughs> I saw it 10 years ago when I lived here.
0: <laughs> Been, there. Been there, seen there. <laughs>
6: So I went down there every day and took photos and generally got into it and, um, yeah, went for a helicopter ride over the falls. It was beautiful. It's a beautiful place.
0: Cool. Okay, now you've got one listed here, which is a flight that everybody remembers. That's their first solo. Uh, Talk about your first solo.
6: (laughs) I might have made that up. (laughs) No, I remember it. Everyone remembers it. What was yours?
0: Mine was April Fool's Day in 1990. I thought it was an (laughs) April Fool's joke. <laughs> My instructor, his name was John Russell, and uh, the aircraft was uh, November Alpha Juliet. So there you and go. Where Mar- were you? No, I was at Morabbin Airport, runway 17 oh. left. There you go.
6: What? It was it? nineteen ninety.
0: Nineteen ninety, yes.
6: Well, actually, I wouldn't have been. Far. I was in ninety one, about the middle of ninety one. Um, I was learning to fly in tow Gamal with John Williams in Bravo Tango Foxtrot, which little Cessna one five two, which taught half the. World to fly, it
3: seems.
6: <laughs> um, so I'm heating along on runway 18 and a mob of kangaroos bounded across the front of the <laughs> – bounded across the runways and I figured that was a good time to lift off.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. Here at Tocomol International <laughs> Airport. da da da
6: And soon after that we were doing um, forced landings and we used to go out to Jerry Lawler's paddock and he had a, an ag strip there cause there's lots of strips for the crop dusters. And uh, so we'd often go out to Jerry Lawler's cow paddock and you'd end up with cow poo all over the bottom of the wings. Hey and you? Uh, well, I yeah. Think,
0: well, I think <laughs> I'm glad I learned to
1: fly at Morabin in that car. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Was this a high wing or a low wing? This wing. was the 152, wasn't it? Yeah. Wow, you're doing well to get poo all over the wings <laughs> on a 152. I can understand if it was a you know piper or something. Those are some powerful cows, that's all I can say. I know, They're
0: some
6: yeah. big
1: piles.
6: So we'd land on the strip out there, dodge the gum tree, wow. watch out for the fence, don't go over the house and wake up such and such because she works night shift nursing. And <laughs> this is small towns.
0: Now, looking a bit further down the list here, one of the things you've listed, uh, which is a subject I'd actually like to cover on the uh, on the show at some point, uh, you talk here about accompanying the graduates on a uh, fear of flying course. That must have been oh, an interesting yeah. experience.
6: Yeah, that was fantastic, actually. Because another book I read was My God, It's a Woman by Nancy Bird, and uh, she had talked about the fear of flying courses, clinics, And um, I think I read that book when I was learning to fly and when I finished my Unrestricted, I went off with my husband to Lord Howe Island and then six months later we came back to Sydney and we are in Sydney for two years. And so while I was there, I became involved with the Women Pilots Association and um, so I volunteered to help out with the fear of flying. So I did one course in Sydney and then one course in Melbourne. So there was a lot to learn actually and it was a good time because – Dennis was going through his airline training and so it was good to be uh, able to see where it was all happening and to get inside the simulator and see how that works and and to help these people who have these real and deep-seated fears of flying, which is often not a fear of flying, it can be a fear of Lots of things. And um, so they had a psychologist would talk people through what other fears they had and give them coping techniques, how to – relaxation techniques and – uh, and they demystified a lot of the stuff that people were scared of like i'm scared the wings will fall off and people would some people would get claustrophobic some people just didn't like the loss of control the fact that you're a passenger in yeah. the back
3: one guy That's said a big
6: one. yeah one guy said oh well, they took me up into the cockpit and i was fine then and i went yeah. home and said to Dennis and' his, his study buddy who was living with us at the time about this and the study buddy laughed his head off and he said you know we've been fighting for that seat since we were about ten, so <laughs> it's not feasible to fly in the cockpit. Can't do it now anyway. We're all terrorists.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Even even pilots who are deadheading are terrorists.
6: Yeah. So um, yeah. So the fear of flying clinic was um, had a wonderful success rate, and uh, it was really good to see these people working through their fears and to have their fears legitimised, and then to have them demystified. You know. Yeah. De feared. Mm-hmm. And then they do a graduation flight at the end. But they have the psychologists, they have the weatherman, they have flight attendants, pilots, engineers. You go yeah. into the engineer's hangar and they show them, you know, how they do the stress testing and stuff like that. You go into the simulator so they can practice standing there watching flying into Hong Kong and stuff like this, which is pretty exciting. But Usually they'd have to have the door open because, you know, someone was claustrophobic and one guy came running out and said, I can't stand it. It's dark and black and, wow. and locked in. So uh, But anyway, most people made the graduation flight. And the girl that I was with, um, she was desperate to go to Hawaii with her husband and he said, if you do the course, then I'll take you to Hawaii. And so she was determined to get through this course. She'd drive down twice a week from somewhere like Dubbo or... More or I don't know, it was way out in the middle of nowhere and um, unless you live there it's not the middle of nowhere but when you're in Sydney <laughs> it's a long way to come and she would do that twice a week
3: to go through the course.
0: Kathy, you're a pilot, you're a, an author, you're a writer, you're, you told us that you're venturing into the world of new media and uh, one of the things that you said to us recently or that you said to me on a Skype call was that uh, you guys need a woman on the show and, uh, well, you know, uh, we we actually agree with that so we're, uh, we're going to uh, announce to our audience here that you're going to be spending some time with us here on Playing Crazy Down Under from time to time.
6: <laughs> <laughs> I won't be talking engines and airspeeds, I'll be talking about, uh, you know, <laughs> your first solo. <laughs> That's great.
3: Yeah. That's cool. They're all, They're
6: all good stories as long as you survive to tell the tale. I had a partial engine failure on my first um, training flight in the Piper Cub um, out of Bendigo and the instructor said, uh, I'll take over and he turned around and went back to the field and I said to him later, why did you do that? Because, you know, all the training says you take 10 degrees of flat and go straight ahead and I could see a big green patch in amongst the bush. Why didn't you go there? And he said, that's the rifle range.
1: Somebody else one. and a huge skeet <laughs> comes across, called a one fifty two.
6: Here comes another one.
1: <laughs> well, I can't miss that one. I follow you.
3: Here they come. <laughs> yeah anyway.
0: All right, Kathy. and uh, the other thing, of course, you do like the rest of us is um, get around on Twitter these days. You want to tell the listeners where people can find you online if they'd like to follow you?
6: Carscribe, K-A-S-C-R-I-B-E.
0: There you go. So everybody can uh, can follow Cathy uh, on Twitter, and we'll put that in the show notes for this episode. And, uh, of course, if you'd like to uh, suggest any stories that you might like Cathy uh, to follow up on from her uh, unique perspective, uh, certainly you can send those uh, those uh, suggestions uh, either through to her directly uh, via Twitter or you can send them here to playingcrazydownunder at gmail.com. And, uh, Kathy, you've also got a blog.
3: I have.
6: Yep, yeah, it's called The Outer Baku.
0: Okay. Now, just before we wrap it up, you better explain to us what that means.
6: It's a famous Australian poem called The Bush Christening. Okay. And it's the first line, On the outer Baku where churches are few and men of religion are scanty, On a road, on a road, a road cross never set,
1: crossed set by folk that are lost.
6: Folk that are lost. Michael McGee had a shanty. And my dad used to um, recite poetry. Someone uh-huh. said, one of the teachers, school teachers said to me one day at school, I met your father on Friday night reciting poetry in the pub. And I said, no, that wouldn't be my dad. No. Uh. no." And I said, what happened to dad today? Someone, this teacher told me that you were reciting poetry in the pub and mum started laughing. (laughs) And then we found out that dad knows all, he he could go on for hours. He knows them all. (laughs) He does it for him in the nursing home now. It's also the only poem my husband knows. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so if you fill him up with red wine, he'll recite it for you. <laughs> <There> you <go.
3: laughs>
6: I actually learnt it from him.
3: Oh, mm. uh,
1: Banjo Patterson, a very famous famous Australian poet. Well,
6: yeah, bit, you uh, got to love that, don't
1: you? That'll
0: get Anthony Simmons uh, excited.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Cathy, it's been uh, fantastic that you could come on the show and have a talk to us. We were actually going to record this interview a week ago, but uh, Skype had a big crash that so we couldn't. It's been great to have you on the show, and uh, we'll, we'll certainly look forward to hearing from you again sometime in the very near future.
6: All right. Thanks, guys. It's been lovely
0: talking to you well there we are what a fun chat that was with Kathy, and uh, boy there have been some good outtakes at the end of this show too by the way folks
1: <laughs> it wasn't all my fault this time.
0: No, no, we had a blast talking to Cathy. And yeah, like I said, Grant, it was uh, it was great to have her on and um, we'd been trying to get uh, some time spare to have Cathy on the show to have a bit of a chat with us for quite some time. So I'm really glad that she was able to come and speak to us despite the technical difficulties that we had.
1: Yeah, yeah. We were supposed to record with her a while back and that was the famous Skype outage where for most people in the world it all went... Pleh and no one could talk to anyone. So we got by that one and then there's been scheduling issues and, well, yeah, finally we managed to have a chat and it was all good.
0: Yeah, despite all the audio issues, of course, uh, Cathy lives in an area that's a little bit outside of Melbourne, so uh, uh, we're going to have to work on her uh, connectivity problems there just to uh, see if we can get Skype working a little bit better. must have been the episode for a grant uh, we should point out too also that uh, we had uh, Ben Sanderlands on the mobile phone and he lives in a a bit of a remote location as well. So uh, actually that interview took place over two phone calls just to try and get the audio up. (laughs) But uh, the content's been really good. It's been a great episode. I've uh, I've really enjoyed these two chats.
1: No, definitely, mate. Definitely. uh, Always good to catch up with Ben on what's the latest in the airlines down here. And uh, also good to get uh, everyone introduced to Kathy. We've known her for a little while. It's about time everyone else did.
0: Yep. And uh, so Kathy will be uh, making some contributions to the show in uh, much the same way that uh, we do with our other occasional contributors, such as Baz, such as uh, David Vanderhoof, Dan Morris, of course, across there in New Zealand, and uh, Anthony Simmons, the infrequent flyer, and of course, Ben Ippolito, the uh, air traffic control. Guru. We're really looking forward to uh, Kathy. She's got some really uh, interesting story ideas coming up that she'd like to pursue, and uh, we're not sure yet whether we'll uh, send her off with a recorder to do those on her own, or we might uh, do a few combined or a mixture of both, but uh, you know, I really think it'll add a, quite a fun dimension to the show.
1: Indeed, mate. Indeed. Looking forward to it.
0: Absolutely. Well, uh, we might wrap that one up there, Grant, before we all get blown off the map.
1: Yeah, I'm um, bravely holding down part of the roof here while talking into the microphone, so yeah, I may have to go and uh, get Nikolai and use him to strap down part of the roof.
0: Okay, well... Well, while you're contemplating doing that, I'll say uh, thanks very much for listening, folks. And as always, we hope you enjoyed the show. We'll be back soon with another episode of Playing Crazy Down Under. But until then, just remember this it's what's down under that counts.
5: You've been listening to Playing Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Visher and Grant McCarran. Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel, and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website www.playingcrazydownunder.com or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website or email us at plaincrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It Five by Brian Simpson. Production and editing by Steve Vischer. This has been a Southern Skies online media podcast.
2: How how
0: we going? Oh, much better.
2: <laughs> Too bad. Well, you know what happened then? I just I swallowed I swallowed a good hit of coffee. So uh, why don't I speak oh. more loudly and? Uh... <laughs> yeah. There
1: you go. That's the one. Well, you
0: you see um see Grant 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 doesn't drink coffee, so he doesn't he doesn't understand the the joys
1: the pleasures of such a such an addiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I have the occasional Red Bull or can of Mother, and <laughs> that gives me a good.
2: Oh God, does not do that. <laughs> that you will die. <laughs> oh.
1: Steve lives for editing. Okay, we are live. Okay. Oh, okay. the red light is on, the solid light is on, the numbers are increasing. <laughs> right to go, Grant? Yeah, I'm right. Right to go, Cathy? I'm
3: strapped up with, in.
0: I will come up with a witty intro in post-production, so from there I will just say... You cheat. <laughs> so I'll just start by saying... you say-
6: realise that's, that's my maiden name?
0: Cheat. Witty. Oh. <laughs> Where do you go from there? <laughs>
6: Oh. <laughs> that wasn't in the script.
1: Ah, there's the first blooper. <laughs> Sounds like my family. We're best in different countries. <laughs>
6: <laughs> Actually, the one in Hong Kong's married, his wife's a air pilot as well. <laughs>
1: Oh,
3: it gets better. Does
1: anyone make the comment, the obligatory comment, oh, watch out for the dragon?
3: No.
6: <laughs> no. She's lovely as well. Have I told you about the book?
0: Well, I was, no. try- I was trying to lead into that for you actually.
6: Oh. <laughs> and I'm going to read you a quote. <laughs> oh. I heard of elephants. A herd of elephants. As seen <laughs> I'm from sorry, a plane. I'm sorry,
1: sorry. A herd of elephants, and you're talking about Steve and I. Wait a minute, hang on. Hey,
6: hey,
1: hey. <laughs> <laughs> you know us too well. <laughs> Gee, didn't know she knew me that well, Grant. Yeah, you and I both. All right, all right, make that a
0: cut. A one.
6: herd of yeah. elephants, as seen from a plane, has a quality of a hallucination. The proportions are wrong. They are like those of a child's drawing of a field mouse. She flew him to England and they got holed up in Egypt and the only accommodation they could find was in this brothel and she describes beautifully walking into this bloody awful place and she looks to the guy that she's with and she says, all the diseases of the world live here.
1: <laughs> oh, oh, way to kill a vibe.
0: <laughs> no, I don't know, Kathy. I've driven a few trains like that.
3: LAUGHTER <laughs> That's the pilot's
6: wife's lot, isn't it? It's not easy being me. <laughs> oh, <laughs> there's there's at, a
1: title for this episode.
6: <laughs> <laughs> I met someone at a barbecue recently. They said, uh, who are you married to? And I said, "I oh, was a airline pilot, airline captain. He said, don't you complain. And I said, what about? And he goes, anything. <laughs> I'm all right. <laughs> so, yeah, you cop that.
0: Yeah, well.
6: No matter, it's a good life.
0: Yeah, it's it's better than going to a, bar- a barbecue and being a train driver. You know, the first two questions you always get asked is question one: How many people have you run over? And, point, and question two: <laughs> How much do you earn?
1: <laughs> the response to both and then, of which and is then none it's of your quickly followed by, and why the hell are you always late or packed or wrong or off track <laughs> well, or out to of schedule or. <laughs>
0: You can find more great podcasts at
3: lifestylepodnetwork.com.au.